blinking off and on. Tweaking my eyes out. So 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 15. We'll begin first in word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for this, for this chapter. Lord, it reminds us of the essential truth of Jesus' resurrection, that, that in his resurrection is our salvation, that he is raised from the dead and we will be raised in him. We have newness of life in him. We have a glorious future to be raised like him who is the first fruits of our also coming resurrection. Lord, help us to understand our future according to your truth and not just from our assumptions or the assumptions of the culture around us. Lord, um, remind us as well tonight, show us how sometimes points of doctrine or points of theology that seem a little obscure and maybe distant are actually very practical. They impact the way we think and live. So Lord, help us to see that from your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is definitely one of the more theological points, um, but it's interesting to see how Paul argues. He confronts a serious theological issue, and he could have simply said, this is core Christianity. Jesus was raised from the dead. If you guys don't believe that, you're not Christians. But he actually, he approaches a little bit differently. Uh, the, the problem apparently is... Well, what is the problem, apparently? In verse 12, apparently, people are saying that there is no resurrection. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, when they say that, when they're saying there's no resurrection of the dead, are they specifically talking about Jesus, or are they talking about themselves? Are the Corinthians making that general statement about there's no resurrection of the, of the dead? Are they specifically thinking in their minds that Jesus didn't raise? Are they denying that? Or are they just saying, well, you're not going to be raised. I'm not going to be raised. None of us are going to be raised from the dead. That's a silly idea. Which do you think it is? I think it's both. It's different. They believe there's any well, they don't believe that they don't believe in bodily resurrection. They are not looking. The Greek mind, the the uh, the Greek culture did not anticipate. They understood rather that things related to the body are bad. Things related to the spirit can be good. So body bad, spirit good, and so they're not. They're looking to be released from the body and to be just spiritual, without any body encumberments. And um, along with that, then they're. They're um, thinking that it would be actually be a silly thing. Why would we want to continue for all eternity in the weakness of this body? I mean, it may seem good for a while, but once you get a little older, you realize it ain't all it's cracked up to be. It's weak and frail and falling apart. And why would we want to be trapped forever in that kind of a situation? And, and so there's, the Greek mind did not anticipate resurrection, didn't see any value in it. It's a silly notion. I don't think, now in the Greek background, they're not thinking about a Jewish Messiah raised at all. That's just, they don't have categories for that. They're not even thinking about a Jewish Messiah. Okay? Jesus comes along, and, 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 or Paul comes along and tells them that Jesus is, is shown to be who he is because he actually came back from the dead. Okay, well that's kind of exciting. Somebody comes back from the dead. But they're not, when, they, when they're still assuming their own Greek cultural background, 
They don't realize that their assumptions about how things are are being affected by their pagan background in ways that are contradicting Christian theology, but in ways that then also actually contradict the very gospel they believed in. They haven't actually chased it back and said, what are the implications of that? If there's none of us are raised, then Jesus wasn't even raised. Or his resurrection was just temporary, and if that's true, what does that mean in terms of humanity's salvation? They haven't pushed back into the implications. They're just rolling with what the culture has assumed. Can you think of any areas where we do that? That we just go along with what the culture assumes to be true? I ask that question because I don't want us to just pick on those poor Corinthians like they're such dopes. Why, why would they do that? I think we do the same thing in all kinds of ways. We, we have for a long time grown into a expertise culture. Somebody's an expert on that, somebody's an expert on that. All you need to do is put, a, put a, um, a label underneath them on the TV screen that shows what their expertise is in and anybody and everybody will listen to them on that basis. We're turning from a, um, a, from a culture of expertise to a culture of cynics who will not believe anybody any longer. That, that, that's the danger of the overextension of the culture of experts. But yeah, we tend to just assume things. They said it. It must be true. That's how they do it in the court of law. They bring in somebody this is an expert forensic guy. Yeah. Tells them okay. they couldn't be this way. The other side brings in another guy yeah. that's an expert. <laughs> right. well, it had to be that way. Wait a minute. You've got to figure out who, okay, who yeah. do you really believe? Yeah. Okay. Um, other things, background in our culture, along the way, people begin to just assume, well, sure, marriage shouldn't be defined so narrowly, narrowly, because it becomes more and more normalized in the culture not to consider marriage normally. So nobody stops to think, well, what are the implications of that? Or if we don't worry about marriage at all anymore, what are the implications of that? Um, there's talk now of reparations. What are the implications? Where does that go if we do certain things? The forgiving of student loans, what are the implications of that? There's, there's all kinds of uh, things that we'll easily go along with. They're just part of the normal around us. The good point is marriage. Uh, 50% of all marriages are divorced now. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not something you need to do. I mean, we go among our friends, and me and Terry are the rare group that have been together this long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most people, it's not common to hear two or three divorces. And mm -hmm. We used to get along, and now we have eight kids by 12 different people. Eight kids by 12? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the other way around. Not a twin. Six couples. Six couples. Next July. 
next July, your 50th. Congratulations. So, so yeah, there, there's, there's an assuming of things in the culture. Okay, okay, so enough said on that. So, Paul starts out here, and first he starts out with a declarative statement. He talks, he goes back to the essential of the gospel, and it's nothing new to them, and they would say, yeah, that's right, that's true, yes. So, we'll jump into there. There's a historical argument, first of all. The visible, physical resurrection of Christ was an essential part of the gospel that the Corinthians, or the apostles preached, the Corinthians believed. The resurrection is central to the gospel. Verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, and when here it says brothers, he means brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, you accepted this when you heard it, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, that's an interesting, there's some interesting grammar right there we should start off with. Are they, are they saved or not? Um, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you. In which you stand is, is a, um, which you have received and you stand, those, there's a perfect tense verb there. They, they, they have and do continue to stand. Something that happened in the past that caused them to be standing and to continue to be standing. So, we talk about that in English as the past perfect. It's a, something that happened in the past with continuing effect. They did and do stand. Okay? And by which you are being saved. That's a different tense. That's a present tense. This gospel is continuing to save them. They are being saved. And it may be that Paul's poking at there's multi-dimensions to our being saved. I have been saved from the condemnation of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. I'm being changed, I'm being transformed, I'm being sanctified is a word we use. And I will be saved from the very presence of sin. So there's a past, present, and future aspect of our salvation. I remember a story of a pastor that got everybody in the room's attention when he prayed at the start of his message, Lord, would you please save me today? And it was like, oh wow, huh, isn't the pastor saved yet? Well, he was introducing this concept of, I am being saved. And they are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. Unless you, believe, unless you believe to no continuing effect. I think what he's saying there is, they are in danger of losing a an essential aspect of the gospel in Christ's resurrection. And that is going to have its impact on the gospel's continuing effect on them. One of the, th one of the essentials of the Christian life is we live by faith. What does that mean? We live by faith. As you have received Christ Jesus by faith, so walk in Him. We walk by faith. What does that mean? Do you think? Okay, faith in what? Faith in what? In the Lord. Okay, that God, the God, my God will supply all your needs. And uh, if he perish, he perish. And yet he will be with the Lord forever. And looking forward to that enduring forever in a new, transformed, glorified body. That our faith in God's promise for the future impacts how we live today. As our 
clarity of God's promise for the future becomes more ambiguous, it loses its hold on, its, on, on us in our lives today. The clearer we grasp, and I would say are grasped by God's future, the greater hold that has upon us, the more it changes our current life, the more we give ourselves away in light of the future. So our, our realization, our understanding of what God has promised in his future, resurrection for instance, and my actual personal connected still to my earthly life and this body somehow still connected, I will be in the future not just some new spiritual entity that will exist like in some other philosophies, but I will be the same me that continues with the same history in this life. The Jesus who is raised is the same Jesus that lived that taught his disciples, that debated with the Pharisees. All of that history stays with him, and our history stays with us. Not in the sense that all your weaknesses and failings and so forth are going to be remembered behind you along the way. Our sins and iniquities, uh, he remembers no more. But the, that what I choose and the sacrifices I make in this life matter. This is God's workshop for eternity. He's growing us for eternity in this life. As they lose the connection of this life to the eternal future, then their faith has less changing impact on this life. I think that's what he's saying just in that opening statement, though he's very subtle with it. But he's going to close... Well, let's peek ahead. How does he close in verse 58? Okay, so he closes with a call to live differently today for the, because of the future, doesn't he? That's how he closes the topic. That's the opposite of how he opened the topic, unless you believed in vain. Oh, but he says your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because the resurrection is true, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, that you are going to be raised in Him, and all that you have given yourself to does make a difference for God's future. Yeah? I noticed in the first verse, and in the 58th verse, he starts out by saying, brothers. Yes. Right there in both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This together, I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. to me, I... I didn't notice that before until just now that like you say he's starting out we're all we're all yeah it's just he's drawing yeah. it together yeah. so you everybody is already kind of uh, going to listen to him because yeah. we're brothers yeah yeah there's that pulling together there's that there's that warmth he's not he's not um, um, pushing them off you sound, you guys are sounding like heretics here right sometimes that's how theological debates go and this is that kind of issue you cannot deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and continue as Christians. One of the things he says, that means that Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, we have no gospel, we have no faith. He's, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but, it, but it's that big of a deal, and yet still he starts out brothers. You guys are losing sight of something important, but he doesn't kick them to the curb. Right. That's good to learn too. There's that brother's touch, but then he goes back to the same language at the end, 
And that, I think, helps us to get what he's hinting at in the beginning. If you lose sight of this, if you let this truth go, if you allow this truth to be sacrificed to fit the philosophy of the culture, you're losing something important that is going to have an impact on how you live for Christ. Theology does impact what we choose to do. What you know affects what you believe. What you believe affects what you do. Okay. So we are being saved out of good theology. Holding fast to that word. Unless you believe in to no effect. No change. For I delivered to you first of all what I also received. Here's the essence of the gospel. The gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. I think there's, there's two essentials and there's two evidences. There's, a, there's an essential and there's an evidence. There's an essential and there's an evidence or a support for it. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. He's buried because he died. He didn't just faint. He literally was buried and he's in the tomb until the third day. And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared. And now Paul stacks up a whole bunch more evidence on the resurrection side because that's the side that's being questioned. He appears to Cephas. Who's Cephas? There's Peter. Okay, he appears to Peter, then to the twelve. So he had appeared to Peter prior to that evening appearance with all the disciples. He's seen in the morning by the women at the tomb. He's seen somewhere along the day by those two on the road to Emmaus. Sometime from, it seems like, about noon onward. Somewhere in there, either before them or after them, he appears to, to Peter before... And did he actually appear to the twelve? Initially, after Peter? Actually, he appeared to the eleven. But then the next Sunday night, he appeared to the twelve. Sorry? Oh, the ten. The ten, yes. The ten, you're right. Judas wasn't there either. He's already a goner. Okay? So, so yeah, it's actually the ten. So why does he say the twelve? Did Paul lose count here? Yeah, I'm not sure if they appointed him yet, because that happens in Acts chapter 1, but there would be 12. And they were going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes, so if they're down one, it's going to be replaced, because there needs to be 12. Yeah, they, they form a unique role, even among the apostles, as the 12. So yeah, Thomas is going to pitch up in the next meeting, so Thomas is, is included, and Judas gets replaced by someone else who is a witness. Uh, Matthias could have been with them in that, in that room that night. There could have been 11 instead of 10 in that sense. Um, we don't know. Joseph, he, he wasn't part of the 12 tribes. It was his two sons that, that took over. Yes, yes. So it's kind of the same thing. There's still 12. There's still 12. There's still 12. But it wasn't... Yeah. Yeah, not the same twelve as we as right. we knew before. Okay, so he so he appears to the twelve, the the official apostles. This is church orthodoxy. This is not just Peter's thing, but not Paul's thing, or Paul's thing, but not John and Peter. No, no, this is orthodoxy. The twelve are together. Then he appeared to five hundred at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. What's he saying there? What's verse six add to us? 
Oh, sorry? Okay, some of them have fallen asleep, but he's using termin temporary terminology for death, isn't he? Well, that's intentional. He does that, he does that in terms of um, 1 Thessalonians 4. That we who, are we who are alive remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have physically died. Okay, uh, where does Paul get that language from? Jesus used it first. Do you remember with who? Concerning who? Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep. I must go and wake him. If he's asleep, why do we need to go there and jump into the hornet's nest? He's going to wake up on his own. No, no, no. Guys, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> but he uses the temporary word because he's going to wake him. And Paul continues to use that same terminology because death for the body is temporary. He's hinting at it already. Did Paul raise someone from, well, through God, through Paul, raise someone from that was like a boy. Yeah, yeah, the guy who fell out the window yeah. he, because he preached too long. And he said he's, no, he's sleeping and then he raised him, him back. Well, I don't know if Paul uses that terminology, but Jesus did, con did concerning the girl that he raises. She isn't dead as you suppose. The child is just asleep. Okay. I mean, now, now I'm quoting a Don Francisco song again. There's another great, great story song that Don Francisco did years ago on that story. Um... So, also, but there's 500 witnesses. Some of them have fallen asleep, but most of whom are still alive. What's he saying there? This is a historical fact. These are eyewitnesses. They can be examined. They can be talked to. And people have, and they've borne testimony. Okay, it's pretty convincing. And then he appeared to James. Who's James? Which James is this? There's a lot of James out there, right? Half brother of Jesus. This is the half-brother of Jesus. James and, and Jude probably included here somewhere. That James, before Jesus' death, is not a believer. They are mocking, hey, if you want to be known, you know, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and show yourself and do your signs and stuff. Another time, they're trying to call him down and take him home because he's, he's drawn way too much attention. This is not, this is not good. Yeah, he, his, 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 his half-brothers don't believe in him, and yet he appears to James. And James does. James becomes one of the pillars of the church. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Untimely born is, a, is, is an interesting statement. It, it, it means born, well, born out of time. It, a lot of people interpret it as born ahead of his time. It, it's used of a premature birth. And some have suggested that what Paul's saying about himself here is he's unique in history among the apostles. He is like those who are going to be called into evangelistic witness as God's messengers during the, uh, during the tribulation period. There's going to be 144,000 witnesses. Jewish evangelists going all over the world. Well, imagine if those are 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Because he's born ahead of his time. He would be like them. And God has drawn him out and confronted him. And Jesus shows himself as risen from the dead to Paul. And Paul has this experience with him, not only on the road to Damascus, but with the risen Christ in the Arabian desert. He refers to it in the book of Galatians. So he has some extended time with the risen bodily Jesus. He knows this for a fact himself. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, not 
unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but the grace by the grace of God I am what I am his grace toward me was not in vain there's that same phrase again not without effect and this helps us to understand what does he mean by in vain God's grace to him did something in him and through him I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God which is with me. And that's a great phrase. Verse 10 is a great phrase to kind of grab hold of and run with a little bit. There's, there's, a, there's two sides of it, aren't there? I labored more abundantly than they all. I go back to King James or New King James, the way I memorized it. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So, and yet my volition, my will is involved. And yet God empowers and God is working in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And yet, it takes my volition to step into what I don't have the ability to follow through. And yet, by His grace, I do. And uh, part of His grace, part of God's grace to me, God's enabling and strengthening grace, is His truth that He's given to me that strengthens, encourages, and enlightens my spirit. Don't just think of God's grace as this um, supernatural power that somehow just comes upon you and allows you to do. What if God's word to you is His grace to you? What if others that He puts into your lives to remind you of truth and to encourage you when you're discouraged? What if those are actually instruments, agents of God's grace to you? God's grace to me was not in vain. The grace of God that was with me. Okay. Well, I think Paul's suggesting here that God's grace does produce results. He says, unless you're believing in vain, you're not being saved. That's that's abnormal. Normal Christianity is a change transformed lives. So do we not believe that God's grace is extended towards everyone? Because if it's extended towards everyone, then it would have affected everyone, wouldn't it? Well, well to some extent, God's, God's mercy falls on the just and the unjust alike. Yeah. And uh, so there is, there, is, there is, theologians talk about a common grace that everybody benefits from. And everybody has then an awareness and some understanding and knowledge of God that the creation witnesses to them and that their own existence is a witness to them of. And so we know something of God and, and, the, and we, we, we push that down. But if, but if we, in the same way, to some extent, there's, there's this working together of I respond to God's grace and yet God's grace enables me. And how those work together is where all the theological arguments are. And um, um, my advice would be to don't, don't, don't press too deeply to, a, to jump off to one side. Um, there's, there's a lot of tension in the Bible in terms of theological truth. Um, God, God draws us, and yet each one must believe. Well, which is it? We, we, we want to choose one over the other, or we want to force, where's the intersection of those two? But they're parallel truths, is another way to think about it. That the responsibility of, of man to believe, and yet God's, God's, um, God's election and choosing. Those are parallel truths. You find both of them all the way through Scripture. But anytime you try to put those two together, like two parallel wires, put those two together and the sparks are going to fly.
So, so keep them as parallel truths. Not in vain can you say with purpose. Well, with, vain, you say with purpose. I would say with effect. With effect. With effect. effect. Um, God's, uh, the grace of God that is, oh sorry, his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not for nothing. It had effect. Right. It was not empty. Um, and, 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 and that understanding of how he's using the word in vain, or that phrase, is how he explains it. On contrary, as opposed to being in vain, I worked harder. It, it pushed me. The grace of God pushed me into action. It caused me to do things. And yet, it wasn't, it wasn't me, it was God's grace in me. And yet, I did things. I worked harder than everybody, Paul says. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That doesn't sound like a very ministerial statement. Imagine your pastor standing up, I work harder than any other pastor I know. Well, gee, that sounds kind of proud. <laughs> you know, that's sort of one of those things like, like humility. As soon as you know you got it, you lost it. <laughs> that's, that just doesn't work. But, but he's balancing human volition and responsibility with God's empowering. We don't sit around on our hands and wait for God to move us. He has already poured out his grace upon us. And, and, he, and, and that grace is compelling us to, to take a step forward. Okay, so then, the resurrection is central to the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached has those two core elements. Christ died and Christ rose. He was buried and he has appeared. And the, gospel, the result of the gospel preaching of God's grace was the salvation of Paul and the Corinthians. Verse 11. Whether and so then, whether or not it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He's not trying to take credit for them. He's just saying we preach that message and it's a resurrection message and you believed it and were saved. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, how can you say there's no resurrection? Because Jesus was raised. That contradicts the whole Greek worldview. They're wrong. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty, of no effect. Your faith doesn't do anything. You can believe it, but it's like Hindu faith. It may change the direction of somebody's life and the things they choose to do, but it doesn't have any eternal impact or effect. It doesn't save them from anything. Your faith, our preaching is in vain. It's for nothing. Your faith is for nothing. We are even found to actually be misrepresenting God. We're, we're false witnesses. We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He said, everything is at stake here. The church stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the apostles are wrong. The Bible cannot be relied on. Pretty strong statement. It's all or nothing here. It's a dead. Easter, it's just a. It's just a That's right. Club. That's right. E Easter, in some ways, is bigger is bigger than Christmas. Okay. So where are we? Well, okay, we testify Christ is not raised. The dead are not raised. Not even Christ has been raised. He re he restates that again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then he makes an interesting statement. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, using that temporary word for death, because he still believes it, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever been told that, you know, you know what, this, the Christian life, living by faith in God, is the best way to live. That even if I found out at the end of my life it wasn't true, this has been the best way to live. Is that, a, is that a, an accurate statement? Why not? Okay, be basing your life upon a lie, but it ended up causing me to live in good ways. Yeah. You'd miss a lot of parties. Sorry? You'd miss a lot of parties. You'd miss a lot of parties. Or maybe a lot of, a, a lot of uh, money making. A lot of climbing the ladder and a lot of recognition. And what does a good life matter if good to who? On what terms? And what if the comfortable, blessed-by-God life that doesn't ask a whole lot and avoids a lot of pain in the American church experience, what if that actually is not the normal pattern of Christian life for those who really get the reality of human lostness and God's future? that causes us to willingly give ourselves away. A life that's built on the reality of the desperate human condition and God's eternal future actually is a life that ends up doing what Paul does. Giving himself away, sacrificing, taking risks. A life that gives things up that you could happily enjoy. But I'll give that up. We'll give our money away. We'll give our time and our energy away for the sake of others because it matters for eternity. And it matters for their benefit for eternity as well. And so there are those probably that, ah, you know, life's been good living this way, following, following, following the Lord in a, in a blessed and happy life. And God's been so good to me that I'd recommend this even if the whole Jesus thing isn't true after all. Even if there's no eternity after we die. Well, you probably actually haven't tasted the real Christian life because it's a life of sacrifice. It's a life like Jesus' life. And that that's unfortunately has been part of what we as American Christians have, have grown into. And we don't need to beat ourselves over the head, of it, head about it. We don't need to self-flagellate ourselves like is the practice of Catholics in the, in the, um, in the Philippines, Philippines in particular. Every year on Good Friday, they have these parades of people crucifying themselves and whipping themselves. And it's a bloody spectacle because they're seeking to, to suffer like Jesus suffered for us. And I'll be careful. Be careful. That's, that's kind of pressing into doing for myself what Jesus did for me. But, um, yeah, following him will we'll call for sacrifice. I think I, we see it, especially well, whoever's been parents, you see it because you're having these discussions with your kids that would be easier sometimes not to have. You're trying yeah. to convince them, like, this is yeah. why we do these things, and they don't want to do them. This is why we're going to this camp this summer. And they're like, I don't want to do this. This isn't fun. And you're like, these are hard decisions. Certainly yeah. Yeah. Kids aren't always yeah. Like, I want to serve first Really? <laughs> yeah. I found adults aren't either. <laughs> Speaking personally. Yeah. So that'd be kind of foolish to spend a life. Yeah. You'd be like, I could have done so much more. Yeah. That would 
I could have enjoyed instead of sacrificed, to put it, to put it bluntly. And that's what Paul's saying here. Man, if we give ourselves away for something that, that isn't true, what a pity, what a waste. What a waste. It'd be like what Judah says about the woman who has the very expensive perfume. What a waste. That's what you could write over our lives if this is not true. But if it is, if it is, yeah, that, that, well, 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 that changes everything. That's what he's getting at. He's not worried merely about their orthodoxy, that they have the right doctrine. His concern for them is their letting go of this reality of the resurrection is going to impact their own lives and thus their, their eternal future, their role in the future kingdom because of their lack of sacrifice. They're just enjoying life as it is because they're not thinking about God's eternal future. Yes, Monica. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection mm-hmm, and a kingdom to come. And the Sadducees did not. What are the Sadducees living for? Right. We obey God in this life and God blesses us in this life. God's a just God. You keep his rules and he'll make it worth your while. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, and, and uh, so the Sadducees were among the more wealthy class in Jerusalem. They, they took their bid off the sacrifices and they had their investments and God's blessing them for their faithfulness as priests. And it's, it's a big political game. They found their peace with the Romans and everybody goes along and gets along and, and they're experiencing blessing in life. And that's all they're looking for. Yeah. Yes? Would I say they were righteous? I would say they thought they were righteous. Is any person just trying to... They, would, they, they, they seem, perhaps, in some ways, self-righteous, although the Pharisees probably lived a life closer in line with the law than the Sadducees did. And so they... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good, rule-behaving people good moral people that are not righteous before God. And when Paul was fighting for the church, oh, yeah. he was doing the best he could. Yeah, yeah, he was, he, was, he was excelling in his vocation, getting all kinds of recognition for terrorizing the church. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people patting him on the back say, Paul, you're a good man. But he wasn't. He was a wretched man. Very passionate about his wretchedness, yes. <laughs> but we, we should move on. Okay, so uh, if Christ, if 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 in this, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, if Jesus is not raised and it's only about today, we're Sadducees, and we're miserable. But in fact, Christ has is raised from the dead. Okay, now now we get to reality. The um, the implications of, of his resurrection. Where are we in the notes here? Christ's resurrection is necessary for creation's restoration from the fallenness of Adam. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen. He used the Jewish term here, the first fruits. The first fruits were the guarantee of an abundant harvest to follow. The first fruits you gave to God in faith 
Oh, it's the first stuff. We've been waiting for grain. We've been waiting for the graves. And yet the first ones we cart off and take to the temple and the priests are going to hoard it away. But we do that. We devote the first fruits to God with the confident expectation that there's an abundant harvest following. First fruits mean there's more to come. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, by a man comes resurrection. In Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. Each in his own. Now does that mean that everybody, everybody who lives is going to be made alive in Christ? Is that a universalist statement? I think it means if you're in Christ. Yes, all in Christ shall be made alive would be another way to read it. Yeah, yeah it's just awkward grammar that way. And so it's translated this way. But you want to be careful not to understand it as a universal statement. Everybody gets saved in the end. That's not what it's saying. Then, uh, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those belong to Christ. So when is our resurrection happening? When, when does the resurrection come? Um, Christ is raised, and afterward, those who are Christ, those who belong to Christ, are raised. Clarifies that last statement. When are they raised? I mean, I've heard the argument because of the thief on the cross when he said, "Surely today you'll be in paradise." So that people are saying that's instant. But other people have said, "Well, it happens all at once." So, like my grandfather passed away, he still isn't because that whole time else. Okay, difference between where am I versus when is my body raised? There's the difference. Paul talked about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, so when I die, if I were to die tonight, my body might be still there, but I'm not there. My body's going to then be buried probably over there. Is that right? Over there? Yeah, the cemetery is that way. But I won't be there either. I would be with the Lord. Awaiting resurrection when my spirit would be joined again with a risen body. And Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul talks about being unclothed. He said our desire is not to be unclothed, to be freed from the body merely. Our desire is to be further clothed upon. So that this mortality would be swallowed up in life. And so our desire ultimately is not to float around in heaven as a spirit being, but to, in the resurrection, be joined in a body that's different than this one, that's fit for eternity, that's incorruptible, that's immortal, not subject to death, but a body that I continue to live in. Our spirits live in and through our bodies. We're known to one another in and through our bodies. And uh, I was just talking to Julie on the way in. I said, well, are we going to, am I going to be Bob? for all eternity? I don't know if my name stays the same. I just don't know that. It does say that he gives, he gives us a new name. So I don't know if my name will be Bob or not. But I will still be the one who in my mortality did this and that and that and that and, and lived here and knew these people and, and had these children and all of that is still part of my heritage. I have with me into eternity that same identity. We're not forgotten and new recreated again. Resurrected is not recreated. This is not um, what, what in India you talk a lot about reincarnation. That is not what this is. Joining into a new flesh. This is a raising and transforming of the old flesh so that the identity 
continues. The same Jesus that rises from the dead and is known to Mary and to the disciples. That same Jesus is the one who taught them for three years. The one they knew before in the flesh, they continue to know. And our resurrection will be like his. When does it happen? Okay, so the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's not with the Lord in the sense of going to heaven, however, because Jesus hasn't ascended yet. Jesus doesn't ascend for three days. So there's that paradise where the righteous, those who believed God's promise that they would be redeemed, God would forgive them, they, they would go to a part of the place of the dead that was called paradise, as opposed to the other part across the gap where those who had rejected God and continued in rebellion against him, they're over there and they can't get over. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is not a place. Abraham's bosom is right there under Abraham's arm. This poor man, who had no status in life, when he's in the place of the righteous dead, waiting Christ's coming and Christ's death for us so that they can be present with the Lord, He's, he's put there right alongside Abraham. This man who had no status has been, is given great status among the righteous of Israel who are going to inherit the kingdom. And yet the rich man who neglected him, he can't, he can't get somebody, he can't cross over the gap. He can't get to where Abraham and the others of faith are. So there's that place. But then after Jesus' resurrection... Now, when we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but awaiting resurrection. And it says that, that um, um, Christ first, and then those who are Christ at his coming. When Jesus returns, then there is the resurrection. Now... We get into other theology here that puts a whole lot of other passages together as to is the, is the, is the rapture here prior to the first resurrection in general of all the other Old Testament saints that occurs at the start of the 1,000 year kingdom. So there's the, there's the question in here, um, one of the neat things about post-tribulation rapture is it, is it doesn't separate that first resurrection into two different occurrences, one for the church, one for Old Testament people. That's a, that's a nice tidying up of that issue that one of the reasons that people are pushed toward a post-tribulation rapture. Um, Pre-tribulation rapture is more of our church's heritage, so a lot of you'd be more comfortable there. But I, I can't get into that, that tonight. I shouldn't have even put it up there. But all that to say is there is a resurrection coming and entering the kingdom... We, there will be people who are resurrected in new, eternal, immortal bodies with Christ in his kingdom. There will be those who had not yet died, who lived through the tribulation period, who also entered the kingdom as mortals. So there will be a time when we will be souped up and upgraded in humanity 3.0. I call it 3.0 because of the Trinity, that's all. But uh, we will be new and different, and yet in the company of those who are still mere mortals. So that'll be kind of an exciting time. But our resurrection happens when Jesus returns. The whole point of that. When are we raised? At entering the kingdom.
Okay, where are we at here? Probably need to move along. Um, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. Okay, we, we jump to the end of the thousand years and uh, the father, after destroying every rule and authority and power, he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Mortality continues even through the thousand years but at the end of the thousand years there is, there is no more mortality. And then, then the death itself is swallowed up. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Paul's aligning himself with, with um, Greek thought somewhat in that, yeah, death is bad. De death is an end of the human experience, is, is a terrible, horrible thing. Death is an enemy, but it's an enemy that's to be defeated. And it, death is defeated in resurrection. That is the victory that we've been given. So God puts all things in subjection under his feet. Then when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain. That now he's saying, okay, but Jesus is still... There's, it gets a little wordy in here, which I'd rather not get tied up in just because of our time. When all things are subjected to him, verse 28, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. There remains, just kind of peeking back to chapter... 11, chapter 7, there remains a headship here, even within the Trinity, even at the end of all of this that is happening with Christ and his kingdom and so forth, the Son is still subject to the Father. There is still an, there is an orderly God who has ordered his creation. So it's interesting that that just pops up again, that he, he points out again that the Son is subject to the Father. Even when the Son subjects all things to himself, he's still subject to the Father. There's not an upsetting of the Trinity here. It's not a matter of equality, it's a matter of order. Okay, otherwise, now we've got a couple more difficult statements. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does that mean, being baptized on behalf of the dead or being baptized for the dead? Mormons do this. We don't really know. There's, the, there's a handful of theories. Some people want to say, oh, baptized in the church in the place of those who die. Why bother? You're just going to die too. That's, that we're, we're not really sure what this means, what this is referring to. It's, it's, it's kind of ambiguous to us. We're not, we're, not, we're not instructed anywhere else, for instance, to go and be baptized for people that didn't get a chance to be baptized. We're not told to do that anywhere. So that doesn't make sense. But what it does mean, I'm not quite sure, it could be simple a statement that Paul saying it that way, um, it meant very easily, maybe one thing I describe, those who are, those who are baptized as a testimony to those who are still spiritually dead. We don't quite know, but they knew what it meant. But it's, a, it's, it's awkward wording. Um, anybody want me to try, to try to do more with that? I could, I could email you as well a list of, if this is a pressing point to you, and you've got, you've got for instance, you've got Mormon people in your, in your family that, or friends that, that they get hung up on this. They want to ask you. They want an answer from you about this. I'd love to engage with you more. So I don't want to just jump over, but I'm looking and we've got 15 minutes left. Okay. Okay, we'll do that. Moving along a little bit, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? 
Let us eat, drink, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. What's he saying here? We do know a little bit more about them. We don't know when Paul fought with beasts at Ephesus. We know that he had trials and troubles while he's in Asia. He writes about that. We don't know what he means by exactly when this happened, this episode of beasts, but we can assume he may have actually been in a situation where he's referring to some opponents as beasts. He's referring to even demonic opposition as beast, or is he referring to actually an episode where he was put into a gladiatorial kind of a situation, threatened to be destroyed by beast? Does he just mean if if I fought with beast in Ephesus, you know, like you know, you speak about something that you didn't do that you could have done, well, you know. What, what would it gain? Yeah, if, and, 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 and the whole point, yeah, yeah, that I, I, I might do, or I might be under that threat, and yet um, if the dead are not raised, why would I risk? Right. And, and we don't, we do know that Paul and his ministry, as we read about in Acts, there are many times that he, 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 he faces deadly encounters. He's stoned in one time, and he's left for dead. Right. That we know that he's shipwrecked. We know that he spends time in the, time in the deep. He's, he's at sea in the ruins of a shipwreck. And, and, and so there's various occasions where, where this comes out in his life, the whole point being he's willing to risk his life and potentially throw it away because this life is not the end. There's more than this. And he holds then this life loosely. Otherwise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. No sense missing the parties. To go back to that theme earlier. You know where that comes out of? This is where I was actually going to... Um, this comes out of Isaiah 22. Okay? If we flip over to Isaiah 22, it's an interesting statement. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, there's actually, there's something going on. Assyria is threatening in the days of King Hezekiah. You looked, and so Hezekiah is making preparations. You looked to the weapons in the house of the forest. You saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. Hezekiah digs a tunnel through to gather the, um, the uh, waters from the spring. That's the main water source for Israel. Bring them inside the wall to the pool of Siloam. That pool of Siloam is still there in the first century when Jesus sends the man that he heals to wash off in the pool of Siloam. In fact, you can still go there and see it today. You can see the, the water still flowing through Hezekiah's tunnel. You can walk through it, uh, sometimes up to almost waist deep. Um, it's the longest working public works um, project that I'm aware of anywhere in the world. still works. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the walls, the houses, to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. And I don't, think, I don't think the Lord is rebuking Hezekiah here. He's rebuking Israel. They're doing all of these practical preparations that the king is leading them in, but their faith is not in the Lord. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, for wearing sackcloth. And what are they doing instead? They're celebrating, they're partying. We've got this. We are making preparations. We've got a wall. We've got water inside. We're not afraid of the king of Assyria now. And behold, joy and gladness, killing of oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink. Maybe actually they, they consider their, their point is hopeless. 
so they might as well eat and drink for pretty soon we're not even going to be here might as well party while we can you can actually see a portion this is a portion of Hezekiah's wall that he built and take a look at the wall first of all this section section right here that's the remains of somebody's house that the wall went right through so here's here's the one of the earlier incidents of imminent domain they took his house and they actually used the rubble from the house to build the wall look at the wall you have whoops in this wall you have it's called a casement wall you have a you have a line here uh, that's that's nicely laid brick you can see some of it there and then you have the same thing on the other side and then it's filled in a hurry with rubble so all the rubble is pulled in between those two nicely built strong walls but the but the width of it then gives it strength and it's meant to resist the the um, Assyrian armies when they come so this is the wall that resists the siege but actually it's God who delivers them from the Assyrians it's not this wall but they have they're going and doing all these preparations and yet it's actually in a hopelessness let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die and that's what Paul's capturing from the Old Testament you're no better off than those in Israel who didn't believe God's promise we might as well why would we sacrifice why would we let our houses be destroyed we might as well eat and drink and party for tomorrow we die and they're being influenced by the society at large and he says bad company ruins good morals what they believe is going to affect how they live it's another way of coming around and saying the same thing they're accepting the the um, premises the preconceptions of the society around them and they need to let that go wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not continue to sin for some around you have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame you should be devoting yourself to demonstrate this new life that God has given you to them share your life with not them not let them be influencing you in a sense cheating you out of the gospel they should be giving out the gospel instead of being cheated out of it would be another way to think about what he's saying there rhetorically okay well then there's a there's a practical question then alright Paul well we understand resurrection raised up I mean now and again we've had to dig up a body for one re reason or another and it is not a pretty sight what are you talking about raising the dead this doesn't make any sense from our experience and from what we've seen uh, okay well how are the dead raised what kind of a body do they come in verse 35 you silly goose you foolish person what you sow does not come to life unless it dies and what you sow is not the body that is to be it's a bare kernel he compares it to seeds and plants you take a seed and you plant it in the ground and what grows up out of there a seed no something very different and much much better and more complex than the original seed that was laid in the ground certainly that which grew is is um, incontrovertibly linked irrevocably linked to the seed that was planted if you plant corn seeds you get what corn if you plant bean seeds you get 
beans. You don't plant beans and get corn. It never happens that way. So what, what is raised, the body that's to come, is different, grander, and yet related to the body that was original. That's the point he's making here out of the, out of the um, seeds and the plants. God gives it a body as he chose to each kind of seed its own body. All flesh is not the same. Okay, we go from plants now to flesh. There's one kind for humans, animals, birds, and fish. And different flesh is made for different environments. We can't live underwater. We can't fly in the air. We are land creatures. That's the kind of flesh God has out... That's the kind of body He's given us. And in the future, for eternity, and what that'll include, that it will, will relate to life on earth with God, but I expect also bigger than just life on earth with God. Okay, there's more to it than that. Exactly what? We don't know. We're not told definitively. But there's more to it, and, and, and we're going to. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Now he's talking about planets. He's talking about stars. The glory of, of one is different from the glory of another. There's the sun. There's the moon. There are other stars. One star difference differs from another. He might be suggesting there that in the resurrection, just as stars are stars, but some stars are brighter than others. He might be suggesting as well there will be a difference in the resurrection in terms of what we are fitted for for eternity. That what we, the way I've, I've, it's been described to me in the past is we grow in this life for eternity. And the capacity by which we, we grow in to know God and relate to Him is a capacity that will continue into eternity. And one will be given one city, another will be given responsibility over ten cities, which assumes responsibility also for the one who is given responsibility for one city. And yet, today, what happens when you have that? Somebody's at this level, somebody else is at that level. What do you have then? You have envy and jealousy, yeah. I don't think it'll be that case at all then. The one that's got one, man, this is just what I can handle. This is just what I can manage. I am so glad I'm not responsible for five or ten. And the one with ten, I'm so glad I'm not responsible for fifty. And this is just what I'm fitted for and suited for. The capacity that I have, and I'm happy in this. But there won't be the comparing, the sinful aspect of life and service. People all through life, even today, have different roles, and yet with that there's the comparing and the envy. And that's a piece that will not fit in eternity. But there's a suggestion, well, there are different glories of stars, different kinds of stars. Just a, just, just a thought. Is he, is, he, is he hinting at something there that fits the bigger theme? Remember, he's got an overarching theme. What you believe is going to impact how you live, which impacts eternity. And so that don't, don't live for no effect, for no change. Okay, so then, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's what the Greeks are not, are not impressed by. Why would I want a perishable body forever? No, it won't be perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Yes, they, they mock the idea of a resurrection body because the body is dishonorable. 
The body has its limits. The human body creates waste that's ugly. It's, it's, there's, there's messiness and uncleanness. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a weakness, but there's a power. There's dishonor, and it is sown in, glor- it is sown in glory. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. But it is not merely spirit, it is a body. In Greek grammar years ago, there was a theological debate on this verse, and the answer to it was came out of Greek grammar, that natural and spiritual are adjectives. Body is the noun. The noun always controls the adjective. So the adjective, a kind of body that it is, it's a spirit-oriented body rather than a naturally-oriented body. His point is it's a different kind of body, but it's a body. It is not a spirit. Remember when Jesus appears to his disciples? He says, handle me and see. That a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. It's interesting he doesn't say flesh and blood. He says flesh and bone. But it's a physical, handleable body. In ways like ours, and yet not like ours, because he appears in the midst of the room. Something that our bodies are not able to do, for instance. Okay. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. God made him from the dust of the earth to be alive. The last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual at first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So he's saying Adam came first, and then the Son of God comes, the, the, the man from heaven. First the man of the earth comes, and then the man from heaven comes. And so it will be, he's comparing that even theologically to resurrection. First there's the the body from the dust, and then there's the body given to us by God from heaven. Connected, the first body is connected with the fallen man, Adam. The second body is connected with with the spiritual man from heaven who is Christ. What if blood is natural, and if we're going to be spiritual? Well, there's something about blood that is perishable. Right. When you when um, when you're going to embalm a body and keep it from rotting and decaying, one of the things you do is you drain out all the blood. Right. That's, one of the, that's the first thing you do. Well, it seems like talking about as we're born humans first, our natural yes. body comes first. Yes. 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 The natural body and then the and and yet here he's not talking about natural birth and then spiritual birth being born again. He is talking about the two kinds of bodies. So we, we intentionally don't want to mingle in, yeah, but this is spiritual. The resurrection is just spiritual. The resurrection is being born again. He's argued long and hard for a bodily difference. Yeah. And so you don't want to lose sight of that in the chapter. I think a lot of us really contrast the idea that Christians have of just singing in heaven in clouds for eternity. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, there's a good book by Randy Alcorn. Mm-hmm. That's a good pickup sometime. Um, it's called Heaven. And what he does is he, he pokes at a lot, the, uh, he pokes into from various places in scripture what we do know about the future. And uh, he, he draws out with the, the kingdom which is on earth. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth so that we continue to dwell with God in his garden. Humanity starts with God in a garden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and humanity ends at the end of the book of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. There we are in a garden with God, and there are fruit trees and there are rivers, and it's just, it's, it's better than the first garden. But it's a very earthly 
kind of experience. And that we will walk with God unhindered and in full relationship with Him in the cool of the day, even as Adam and Eve did before the fall, before they were separated, before they die spiritually. Separation. Okay, so then verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Yep. End of verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I, 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 think, I, I think what he's referring to is as we have been, we, we, we are born into. And so we bear, we look like Adam. Our bodies have the same limitations now fallen as, as Adam's mortal body did. And we will also bear the image of the heaven. We will be like him when we see him as he is. That in the future we will be transformed. And this is where we get the notion that as Jesus' resurrected body is different from his natural body, that it has capacities. He can be here and then he can be there. He can, he can transport without the enterprise. And yet he still is able to eat food. He still has that fleshly physical existence. He can still give a hug and receive a hug. And yet, there's a new dynamic to this body. That's, that's what I think is being there's described here. That's right, that we are going to have this, this transformed body as Jesus does. Jesus bore Adam's body, a body that was subject to death, a body that could be poked and bleed. And then, a body that doesn't need food, but can still enjoy food, can still share fellowship together in very human terms. So, flesh and blood, now we got blood again, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Right. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Those who still are alive at this moment will be changed, transformed into the image of the man of heaven or the likeness. We bore a likeness of, of, of Adam in his, as the man of dust. We will bear the likeness of the man of heaven. We will be transformed, changed. This perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body will put on immortality. So I think all of that is rolled together in the explanation of the end of verse 49. That contrast. All of these contrasts, it's all kind of stacking up. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal immortality, then comes about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Talked about that earlier. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Death is an enemy. Death is not a good thing. Death is not a blessing. Death is an enemy. It wasn't supposed to be this way. When people grieve, we identify with them. Say, say God agrees with what your heart is feeling. It is not supposed to be this way. This is not God's intention. This is, the result, this is the result of humanity's rebellion. And yet, God has, God has prepared for us a rescue from this. God has prepared for us a rescue into immortality and imperishability where death's victory is destroyed. Death no longer has any sting. It simply ushers me into the presence of God and moves me closer to that imperishable body that can never be destroyed. Therefore, 
throw yourselves into it. Give yourselves away. It will be worth it all when we bodily see Jesus. Any last thoughts or questions? I ask like any, any lingering questions as if we covered everything fully about this deep, rich chapter. I thought there was a lot of encouragement to hear about just when it talks about body, how God has given us this body, and we see a lot of that's in the news today, where people are fighting against that idea that this body they're born into is their body they should be happy. You know, they want to fight against that. Yeah, yeah, the me is not, the, yeah, this whole notion about identity is that there's an internal me that the body is just a shell. Well, the body's more than that. The body is me. And yet, I'm not merely my body. And yet, yeah, I am linked to it. Um, uh, there is this, and, and it doesn't mean that in our fallenness there isn't confusion. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. But now it's being marketed. That's the problem. It's being marketed at young, impressionable ages where it's become a cool thing. It's a celebrated thing. And so we're pushing... We're pushing a mental confusion. That which used to be categorized as, a, as another kind of mental illness that needed care and treatment. And now we're actually going the opposite direction with it. It's a terrible thing. We're pushing harm. And just an encouragement just for teenagers. Just because we have some and we were one once upon a time. And a lot of times teens say, well, I don't like this body. I, don't, I, don't, I wish I didn't look like this. Oh, body. yeah, yeah, and yeah. saying this encouragement from God and says, I gave you this body. Yeah, yeah. And that's another interesting that goes into the, in, into the gender issues today, that teens have always, in that coming into, in that developing of one's own identity, uh, they've always not liked their body. And all of us have something about our body that we're really not jazzed about, that we think should be different. If, it's, if you've got straight hair, you wish it were curly. If you have wavy hair, you wish it were straighter. You know, there's, it's, it's as simple as that, but it's much more complicated than that too, isn't it? But we all have things that we don't like about our own bodies. There's a dissatisfaction. And um, that's been pushed to a whole new level now. But yeah, that's very normal, and yet, yeah. This, this, what Paul is always also doing here is he's countering the Greek notion that there is no value to the physical mortal body. This is a body God gave us. This is a God, body God gave us to relate to others in and to experience life in. And even this body, even with its weaknesses, is still a gift from God to be valued rather than to be dismissed. And if you push the notion of the, the Greek notion of dismissing the physical body, what purpose is life at all in it? And it ends up in a very, you push that, you push, you, you move that along a little bit. If we went the other direction with chapter 15 and we pushed into the, what the implications are of devaluing physical body and physical life at all, we quickly end up in a suicide cult. That's where that leads. And unfortunately, there's an increasing, that kind of nihilism, nihilistic nothingness mindset is growing around us in our society. What is there to really live for? And all eternity is the answer, as he describes it here. So yeah, there's a wonderful hope, but only if it's true. Yeah. <laughs>
All right. Anything else? Any other thoughts, observations? Tom, would you dismiss us in prayer? Amen. One question. Is our faces going 